0: Okay, well, I've already started recording, so Lauren, even though you're feeling a little rusty from uh, (laughs) delays, airport delays, (laughs) no delay, um, do you want to, are you, do you feel okay to start us off with something and then we'll all fill in the gaps? Yeah, um, so I found, I had quite a few sources, I believe I had eight
1: different articles I found. Um the first source that I found it's from nutritional psychiatry it's called your brain on food and it was by um a medical doctor named Eva Shell Selhub I believe um so Through her study, they were looking at um, how the effects of nutrition affects the structure and function of your brain, uh, as well as your mood. So they found that foods that contain lots of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants and such um, nourish the brain and they protect it, pardon me, from uh, oxidative stress which is produced when the body uses oxygen. And um, if the stress is really significant, it can damage the cells. So they noted that consuming too much sugar in particular affects insulin levels, which can cause inflammation and stress in your brain. So um, they found that this had a correlation between impaired brain function and worsening symptoms of mood disorders, such as depression. So I thought that that was an interesting source to look at because I know that a lot of people now are uh, treating sugar as though it's a drug itself, and they're trying to wean themselves off of it as well as their children. And there's this big debate on whether it's as harmful as other drugs. I, I read an article somewhere where they referred to sugar as being just as harmful as cocaine, just in a different different way. Um, so I thought this was interesting for that reason and the fact that there is still a high level of depression and we're noticing that it's it, the age of onset is appears to be earlier and earlier Um, that children as young as like really young, like four or five years old, they're presenting with symptoms of depression and makes me question whether it's due to the high sugar levels that we have in virtually everything we eat.
2: (coughs) It's interesting you bring that up because I actually found one
1: myself and who in here likes chocolate? I do. <laughs> I, just, I just ate That's some.
2: One. Yeah, I love chocolate. Um, <clears throat> so what this was saying basically was that the unsweetened cocoa powder and um, dark chocolate in moderation is actually good. Now, chocolate Oftentimes has sugar in it, and it doesn't indicate uh, sugar-free. But there is something in it called—and forgive me if I pronounce this wrong—I think it's called flavonoids. That's the way my screen reader pronounced it. And it's actually something—it's actually something that helps the brain. So you're getting the sugar intake, and you know, in moderation. They—you know—it's always said everything in moderation. But that's mm-hmm. one circumstance where a snack that everybody would like that may also be told to stay away from has actual health benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're having the cocoa powder, um, they say that that's really, really good. But again, the un- that's unsweetened.
0: Yeah, so that's actually, um, yeah, a really uh, important distinction in terms of the the flavonoids, bioflavonoids. Uh, we actually see in a lot of different um, foods, like um, berries have that, and um, I believe the the oranges do. the um, The white part around the oranges, I think that's a source of bioflavonoids as well, and uh, and a lot of berries, as I said, and those have a lot of neuroprotective effects and have been researched for, for quite some time. But, um, you know, in that situation with chocolate, it, it is often paired together um, when really the sugar part of that is not the necessary part. So it's, it's what are the components of that snack that are useful for us versus the ones that are Potentially damaging.
2: Okay. They do talk um, here also quite a bit about mixtures of berries, and and berries do contain an awful lot of antioxidant properties. Blackberries, blueberries, uh, raspberries, and then there's other vegetables as well, like especially they emphasize the greens.
3: Um, yeah, I just wanted to touch up on that as well. Uh, on berries specifically, I guess um because um a lot of our foods that we eat have um free radicals and that enter into our bloodstream, and then of course, they make their way to the brain as well, and that's been linked to problems with memory later on in middle age and so on but um yeah, as you mentioned, these um berries, like especially blueberries and grapes um they contain antioxidants um that nullified those effects. So it's, uh, it's great to incorporate those into your diet. And, um, another thing I wanted to mention the, um, important of importance of glucose. And I know Chris, you mentioned everything in moderation is good. And I, and I do agree with that because evolutionarily speaking, um, we crave sugar because it's, um, it's a very, it's very enriching and, um, it, it, is involved in a lot of process like we need it it's a high source of energy so evolutionarily um since it wasn't readily available we would always be seeking it out and whenever we were able to find it we would consume it but now that it's so readily available and um you can go buy it at your corner grocery store um in the form of chocolates whatever it is um candies um that of course has a negative effect so yeah um i think everything in moderation i can i can <coughs> is uh, beneficial.
2: And spicy
1: chocolate. <laughs> I feel bad. I just ate a chocolate bar
2: <laughs> as we were doing but this. that could have benefits. Come on. Yeah.
1: Got a little sugar kick, that, in it. <laughs> the
2: other thing I found um, interesting here is it's a little bit of the changes where they talk about, uh, we hear often about omega 3. Um, and there are a lot of things that. Uh, contain omega-3, and it has a lot of health benefits as well. You have your salmon, your tuna, your cod, uh, halibut. Now, not everybody is a person that's into fish, so if not, then you have soybeans, walnuts, and other things that also contain uh, the omega-3. Um, as well, they have eggs, which have vitamin B, D, and E. So that's uh, along with the berries and the other things, you know, consumed together
3: you to get a mixture of beneficial properties. Um, yeah, Chris, I think I was actually watching one of the speakers uh, from TEDx who mentioned something about vitamin E specifically and okay. um, how it plays a major role in pretty much neurogenesis of uh, like people who have uh, Alzheimer's or dementia, like it's uh, it helps with that and it helps with memory as well. Uh, vitamin E is uh, quite important. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, we will have okay. the link to that video in the footnotes. I would urge everyone to watch it. So. The,
2: the unfortunate part is is that during the winter time, especially, we don't get enough sunlight. So you lose the natural vitamin D that comes from the sunlight in the yeah. summertime, which oftentimes is why you would see people taking like a a vitamin D supplement of sorts Mm -hmm. um, because they simply don't get enough of it.
3: Yeah, I actually took one last night. My mom just got three bottles of vitamins and she was like, take some. (laughs) Um,
1: Just to add on to that, that original study that I mentioned at the beginning of this, um, they also noted the importance of probiotics. Um, and its effects on anxiety level, perception of stress, and mental outlook improvement. And um, they found that the reason this may have an effect is because neurons are highly influenced by good bacteria, not bad bacteria. Um, Probiotics can act by protecting the lining of your intestines, which creates a barrier. So other toxins can't penetrate and then travel up to your brain and affect neurotransmitters. Um, And they actually found that um, they had a group of individuals uh, consuming a traditional Mediterranean diet. So it's Mm. high in fat, healthy oils, like olive oil, um, fish, as we mentioned, uh, lots of vegetables uh, low amounts of dairy and they actually found that the rate of depression or the risk of depression sorry in those individuals was about 25 to 35% lower so I thought that was interesting. And they also stressed the importance of having a um, consuming modest amounts of lean meats, which I also found to be important because a lot of people, again, are moving towards plant-based diets um, yeah. or, or consuming diets where they're vegan, let's say, two or three times in the week if they can't con- um, commit to the entire, their whole life to it. That, that that can can stress the importance of perhaps this push in health that we're noticing.
3: Yeah, um something about um lean meats so or just a, a diet with a lot of meat in it. Um I did look at some studies and um I heard another speaker talk about um studies they conducted in Chicago where they compared people's diets. Um, who were con- consuming? I forget the exact numbers, but about like 13 grams of um, meat in a day versus um, 25, or so. it was something like that. But um, what they saw was those people who were con- uh, consuming more meat um, had a significantly higher chance of uh, developing Alzheimer's disease uh, later on in their life. Um, and not only did they do that, um, just Looking at environmental conditions or um, your food consumption, they also looked at uh, the genetic factors because I believe there's a specific gene. um, And if you receive that allele or the short allele for that from either one parent or both parents, of course, your chances of getting that disease is higher. So they did um, that same test with um, people who had those, um, those short alleles. And they looked at people who were consuming Less meat versus more meat, and um, you know healthier foods like more greens and veggies uh, versus not, and uh, they they saw the exact same results. Um, people, regardless of their genetic predisposition, if they were to if they were to watch their diets, um, they could avoid that. And whereas people who are having just a regular diet or having a, incorporating a lot of meats into their diets or unhealthy foods into their uh, into their diets, their chances of that disease, or of course,
2: I have It's it. Interesting <laughs> you mentioned that because one of the things that I was reading, <clears throat> excuse me, it was talking about red meat. Um, and as uh, red meat does it have its benefits. We um, can often also consume too much, back to everything in moderation again, uh, too much red meat, which actually contains stuff that's not really that great. Um, yeah. Also, As far as protein and stuff like that is considered, um, I have heard that protein oftentimes is a little harder for the the kidneys to break down uh, through processing and whatnot. So a lower amount of protein, um, excuse me, protein is necessary, but too much, again, can have a, a negative impact.
1: Is any of us vegetarian at
0: all? Uh, no, not me. No. Um, I'm, I'm like half vegetarian. <coughs> um, I, I go back and forth uh, between being vegetarian, but we do consume a lot of vegetarian meals and try to uh, keep our meat consumption to a minimum. I
1: was just curious, do you notice a difference? Like, do you feel as though you have more energy, you sleep better when you're not consuming meat? Because that's something I've heard from um, my some of my friends that are vegetarian or vegan.
0: Yeah, that's a good uh, question. I've never noticed that um, at all. I do find that there's like times where I really crave meat. So I feel like for me, I'm... A, I'm I'm a type of person, whatever my constitution is, that I do need some amount of meat, um, but not all the time. So I, I more feel it when I don't have meat as opposed to having too much. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I don't know, I think there might just be different uh, people with different genetic makeups that require different amounts of yeah. that kind of protein. This be I,
2: interesting to explore, actually, because they talk again about... Protein, not always just necessarily being meat, but even nuts and seeds. So, if you're not someone who eats meat, but eats nuts and seeds, let's say, and are vegetarian or vegan, I'm not sure if they, if they consume those things. But what would the difference be? Or would
0: there be a yeah, I mean, I think part of it, I mean, has to do with saturated fats and the types of fats that, like, you know, you, you mentioned the fish oils at the beginning. Fish oils are really important for our, our brain. It's important for the cell um, to function properly and even just like the structure of them. And so, and then potentially for like facilitating antioxidants and things like that. And so, you know, fish oils are good oils. Um, You know, apparently olive oil is good oil, but then like fats from like meat, uh, I don't know, have those same kind of benefits. And if anything, they might be part of what's contributing to like the Alzheimer's. you know, greater likelihood of getting Alzheimer's or whatever it is. Uh, And I don't know the mechanism for that. I don't know if any of you have, in anything that you read, Think about any proposed mechanism for that link between meat and maybe some of these negative consequences.
3: Um, I didn't find an exact mechanism, but I did read up on something similar to what you just mentioned. So basically saturated fats and trans fats and how they end up... um, Producing or not really producing, but contributing to those um, beta amyloid structures that form in the brain, that um, like a hallmark for Alzheimer's disease. Um, that in that and also metals like copper, and there was another one just from that come from the utensils we use, like a mm. like a pan or a charcoal, uh, charcoal bar- barbecue grill. but uh, Yep. Yeah, I think it was iron and copper, um, but those accumulate in the brain um, along with those trans and saturated fats. And, yeah, trans fats are, I think, in donuts and um, other, a lot of, sh- like, high saturated sugar things. So, Krispy Kreme, try to avoid that, or, like, pastries, stuff
2: like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. About the uh, the iron, I actually one of my sources uh, mentioned that iron deficiency is characterized a lot of the time by brain fog and impaired brain functioning. And they also noted that females in particular tend to need more iron than males. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason for that tends to be due to their, their menstrual cycle. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: Yeah. So I thought, I thought that was, that was kind of interesting because you always hear guys saying, Oh, I need all my red meat. Like, they just want to eat lots of it. And then you discover that actually it's females who need it more. So if they're going to be consuming the red meat and I think that can, I mean, without getting too personal, but I think just from my girlfriends and myself, I noticed that when I'm not eating properly, especially around that time, um, I tend to get, a lot of mental fog I have a hard time concentrating and you actually for myself get a really really strong craving for red meat mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I'm just realized now that that's probably due to the iron deficiency and and it's it's important because as soon as myself and my girlfriends eat what we need <laughs> we're right back to being ourselves for the most part yeah All
0: right. Uh, I definitely feel the the lack of iron um, myself and then, then I know what I feel like when I get iron. So either I take an iron supplement or I change my diet and, um, you know, I can feel very, very tired and like I can't, it's, I find it very obvious when I'm working out or playing, like if I'm in my competitive sports season or something and I just can't like get going and I start to even have like these heart palpitation things that happen. And, uh, yeah, so it's very, like, my body and my brain definitely feel the iron being low. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, something else I kind of run here <clears throat> that
2: I don't know if it plays a contributing part or not, but again, looking back at neurotransmitters, maybe you maybe can comment on this. Um, what the iron deficiency have uh, or take a toll on things like dopamine? Because again, I was reading a study here where it was talking about. Um, dopamine and eating foods, uh, eating certain
0: foods and it having an impact. But and having
2: what, sorry? Any kind of a, having an impact mm-hmm. on uh, the, the, the food would have the impact on, on dopamine mm. and the production of it. Um, I just want to say
3: something about that. I think um, we even discussed um, something along these lines on uh, our neuroscience class, um, how a lot of what we eat is pretty much what goes into our bodies and it's broken down and that's what's used, uh, in the formation of certain neurotransmitters. So I think depending on what, what we were eating or if, or lack thereof, um, yeah, I could, I could see how those neurotransmitters would be produced in a lesser quantity, which would result in certain feelings. Like, um, I was looking at studies, um, um, to do with fasting and different ways of fasting. So, um, there was intermittent fat, there was intermittent fasting and there was just a reduced caloric uh, deficit where you eat about like 20 to 40% of, um, your supposed intake. Um, but yeah, they did say that if you're not eating enough, like prolonged, prolonged periods of fasting or going without food, um, not only results in cravings and, um, you just crashing and going on a binge, but also affects your mood, probably because of uh, things like the low, lower quantities of uh, certain neurotransmitters, like maybe dopamine or serotonin. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'd like to talk more about fasting, if anyone else has any information about that, or even if you want yeah. to talk more about that, Ayaz, because yeah. that's like a very popular uh, mm-hmm. diet right now so do we know like I don't actually know much about the neuroscience of the fasting but you know what is what what happens um when people undergo like a a proper regimen I don't even know if there is a proper regimen for fasting or you know what are are, is it all negative in terms of what happens, happens when we fast or are there any positive benefits at least from a neuroscience perspective does anyone know um, if
2: I can just comment. I just uh, actually read something or heard something on the news about this last week, and it was specific to breakfast. And they were, what they were saying was, is for a lot of years they're saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um, you know, don't skip breakfast because it helps out your system and this and that. And now they're actually saying that maybe that's not necessarily the case. Um, I haven't heard anything. Further on that, but it sounds like something that they're that they're um, looking more into fasting and
3: how it impacts the body system. Okay, um, so in my research, I did um, I did actually look at fasting um, in some detail. So intermittent fasting, specifically, says um, it enhances the parasympathetic. Activities, um, which is I think uh, mediated by acetylcholine. Um,
0: um, yeah, it could be the acetylcholine, um, but also uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine.
3: Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. um, from what I can see, um, it it if uh, um, it's impacting, I think four um, major regions. So that would be the hippocampus, the striatum, uh, the hypothalamus, and the brainstem. And it would make sense because they're part of cognitive processing and one's part of control of body movement. Another one's for food intake, body temperature, um, cardiovascular and digestive system. So from what I can from what I have seen, um, if you are fasting in a way um, which is not excessive, like you're not going on 72 hour fasts, like if you're doing, I would say, about 16 to 18 hour window or if you're having one meal a day they they have they have observed some some cognitive benefits or actually a few cognitive benefits to to those there's more positives i believe than there are negatives if you are fasting properly okay and,
0: um, and so with that fasting regimen does that usually the skip the breakfast um and then don't eat past like nine o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night or something like that is that what it Ooh. is
3: i don't um well it doesn't It's not specifically to breakfast or a specific time. I think it's about the hours um, that you fast for. So you can choose your eating window. Like if your eating window is eight hours or six hours and you want to eat between the hours of 10 to six, let's say for an eight hour eating window, that's up to you. But if you want to push that window all the way to 3 p.m. because let's say, I don't know, you work night shifts. So you need your breakfast at 3 p.m. or something like that. You can push that as long as your body is in a fasting state for the remaining hours and um, I think well I can actually I can personally speak about fasting just and how it's helped me because um, I um, used to be I believe I used to be over 250 pounds at one point um, but just fasting for about a month and a half no I would say two months actually and um, controlling my diet so I just completely eliminated carbs altogether except for just some Complex carbs, so like lettuce, veggies, raw veggies, um, and I was eating protein, and I lost about um, fifty-five to sixty pounds um, wow. in 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 that span. Um, I think I lost a little more after the two-month period, um, totaling about six, around sixty. But I lost a lot of weight that way, and um, at that time, I wasn't really exercising or exercising frequently anyways, I wasn't in a pro- proper routine or anything like that. Um, but I did see studies indicating that, and, and we talked about this last week as well, BDNF, how exercise releases a lot of BDNF in the brain. So they observed um, certain diets, like calorie restricted diets or intermittent fasting, produce some sort of, a, they, they produce the same result, kind of similar to exercise in that BDNF production. Wow.
2: Um, yeah. um yeah if anyone has thoughts on that and please share guys yeah I the only would... thing i'd be curious to see is they have talked before about um going back to sugar levels and things like that in the body where you would go to fast but if you fast you have to be really careful because if you mm-hmm. don't it will um spike the blood sugar level quite a bit which isn't good either yeah, yeah. um hypo or hyperglycemia there was a little bit i was reading about that Mm -hmm. Um, and also what kind of stuff Um, one thing we haven't touched on here that would be an example for this is complex versus simple carbohydrates Mm -hmm. so if you go off fasting let's say and then you go sit and eat a half a bag of potato chips yeah it's, it's not going kind to of benefit you, right?
3: Definitely not, yeah.
2: So you have, to be, you have to be really careful with that as well when you go back on to eating with what mm-hmm. exactly it is you actually eat um, and yeah. watch the sugars and all that because mm-hmm. you don't want to spike the sugar level too much.
3: Yeah, and uh, Chris, I'm so glad uh, that you mentioned that because just, bec- uh, just because you're fasting or if you're following diet where you're on a calorie restricted diet doesn't mean you should be eating unhealthy foods um, for your one or two meals because okay here's an example so basically um sumo wrestlers what they do when they want to put on a lot of weight uh, for a competition or whatever tournament it is what they'll do is they'll have one meal a day but they'll eat a lot of it so basically what happens is when you're eating simple simple carbs your body is releasing Insulin, and um, it's going towards um, it's going towards the energy uh, for helping your muscles, you know, if after a workout or something like that, whatever whatever your training may be. It's, if that energy is going towards the muscles, once the muscles receive that energy, everything remaining is being stored as fat. So if there's a high insulin spike in from just one of your meals, all that remaining energy that didn't go towards your muscles or towards your consumption of your, um, you no, know, for your brain processes, that's all going to be stored as uh, fat. So that's uh, one of the ways they try to put on weight is like that. But I want to mention is that um, if you're following a intermittent fasting schedule, um, even in your eight-hour eating window, or even if your eating window is four hours, what you should be doing is um, breaking your meals down into three or four meals, depending on your eating window, and having or try, at least try to have um, small amounts of simple carbs and increase it, increase your complex carbs instead. So your, your portion mm-hmm. should be around like, this is, if you're, if you're looking at macros, just strictly just macros, you can't, I don't think you can go wrong with a 40, 40, um, 20 or 40% protein, 40% uh, carbs and that's includes simple and complex and then 20% fat.
2: I've never been able to figure out how to do that properly. So you're
3: ahead of me on that one. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I, try, I tried a few things for myself um, um, and see how it, how it works for me. Because um, there's, you know, te- just because of technology, a lot of things are at our disposal. Like, um, so I use, I personally, I use something called MyFitnessPal when um, I want to track my calories and my macros. So you can just input your food in into it. And it will show you exactly how many calories it has. And it will give you a breakdown of um, all the macros like protein, sodium, carbs, all of that.
0: Um, I have a question uh, maybe also just to bring us back into the like – neuroscience realm of this Mm because I find all this really interesting but I'm also I'm curious as to cognitively what you felt um or what you do feel when you're you're fasting because I mean that's amazing how much weight that you lost and um but I'm curious as to like what what your brain was feeling from your personal perspective
3: yeah so when I first started and this is, um, this is not, I'm talking long term fasting. So I do, t- I guess I do two different types of fasting. So one would be for religious purposes uh, because I follow Islam. So during the month of Ramadan, I will fast um, during the daylight hours where I won't be eating or drinking. So when it comes to no fluid consumption, that takes a major toll on my body. So at that, I believe by then, um, like as, let's say if I'm supposed to break my fast by, 8.30 or 9, I would say by 6.30, 7, I'm feeling exhausted. Like I'm I'm frustrated um, or I'm just, um, I'm very edgy at that time. You know, like anything, the smallest thing could set you off. But I think that's more to do with not having any water than food. Because in, in my fasting experience, I've never felt that, oh my God, I need food. Or whenever whenever I'm fasting for Ramadan, I've never felt like, oh my God, I need food right now. Sure, I felt hungry here and there, but it's the water Um that really drives um, you to that edge. But when I'm fasting, um, when I'm doing intermittent fasting, depend, I think depends on how far I push my eating window to. So for me personally, if I, if I have pushed my eating window to about 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., usually I'll wake up feeling pretty good. Um, I feel more active. Um, I have greater motivation to just go to the gym. And um, actually, I don't know if that's a placebo or not for me, just because um, I know like if, I'm, if I want to burn more fat, if I go on an empty stomach, my body's going to use uh, my body's going to use my fat because there's no other um, glucose or energy source for it. Um, but mentally speaking, yeah, um, I'm able to, I think as long as I'm not pushing my eating window past 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., I, I would I experience more alertness. Uh, more alertness and slightly more driven.
1: Does it get easier as you go on?
3: I, I mean, I imagine
1: the first week or first few days is pretty tough, but it it gradually gets easier, I assume.
3: Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, first few days, two or three days, um, I found it quite difficult. Um, a lot of the times, it's not even um, the hunger itself. I would say it's just managing the schedule. Like if you're like if you know if you're starting your day but the only meal your first meal you're having is at like 2 p.m or 3 p.m you can see how that might interrupt uh certain things like you know maybe having (laughs) breakfast with your family or even having lunch with friends or something like that so I experience complications in in more more like social relations rather than like bodily Mm -hmm. after after a while yeah
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'd be open to talking more about fasting But for the sake of, um, you know, the, the nutrition and the brain idea Yeah um, What, like, is there any other um, topics that people That any of you came across when you were doing your research That you wanted to to bring up um, That gives, you think, needs a little bit more air time?
3: Mm-hmm. I'm just um, going to run out here, let me see So um, there was a study um, with rats that and they looked at caloric, uh, caloric sorry, calorie restriction. So mm-hmm. this was not fasting; It was about, like I said, 20% to 40% of what their, their supposed normal intake should be. So they, they saw their, their performance enhanced on behavioral tests for sensory and motor function. And also for their learning and memory. Um, they saw that it increased brain function in adult rats um, where it was associated, like there was an association made with increased synaptic plasticity. Um, human trials, as far as human trials go, um, the research is fairly um, in its early stages, but they are seeing some similarity and uh, benefits of Following, I guess, certain diets.
1: Um, another thing as well, just to add on that I found to be interesting was there was a study about maternal depression symptoms, unhealthy diets, and child emotion emotional behavior dysregulation. And they looked at um, the susceptibility one is under when they when they receive not just. A deficiency in food, but a low quality of food, um, and they found that unhealthy diet in pregnancy and early childhood is associated with um, child cognitive dysfunctions and emotional mm-hmm. behavioral difficulties such as ADHD, depression, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they also noted as well that if the mother has depression while she's pregnant that can affect what she might consume, she might not eat she might overeat, she mm-hmm. might eat unhealthy foods and they noted that that can in fact pass on to the fetus while it's in her and once the child is born as well so I, I thought it was interesting that it's not necessarily the amount of food per se or how mm-hmm. often they eat but it's also the quality of it
2: yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I wanted to just make a point too. So, um if if you are following a unhealthy um dieting program, that then you'll definitely and the research has shown that you will experience uh, deficits in sustained attention and um you'll have a reduced ability to remember and just slow your simple reaction time even will be slower.
0: Mm-hmm. I find all this really interesting not even just from a neuroscience perspective, but how that actually relates to like inequity in mm. in the world, and you know, even if you just look at say North America or Canada, and how mm-hmm. you know, good good healthy food is really expensive because yeah. you know it's it's real fruits and vegetables, and um, you know and real like whether it's nuts or whatever kind of protein you want to get or whatever and it's really hard for people who are living you know near the poverty line to get those foods and then you know as a pregnant woman it starts off negative even if you have the best intentions of providing for your child you may not have access to the food that you need and then that creates a situation where then the baby is born and potentially has behavioral problems, attentional problems, you know, what reaction time issues, all these things that could be traced largely to nutrition, and then they're, you know, down another path of inequity because they're treated differently for behavioral issues and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing I found, there was one, one
2: study, and there wasn't a lot of information on it, but it was actually, <coughs> excuse me, tying nutrition to criminal activity. Mm. And it was talking about hypoglycemia, and it was talking about um, they were trying to see if there was a direct link between criminal activity, which, of course, would be under the behavioral um, heading uh, and lack of nutrition, or not even just lack of nutrition, but the food that it's consumed. So you can take this from many different avenues.
0: So in that study, did they find that there was a link between that? Like, was there a, co- a strong correlation there, there? There
2: was, there was a little bit between uh, people that had foods that were not so healthy, or uh, like I say, there was mention about hypoglycemia as well. So but that it wasn't was... a large study, and there wasn't a ton of information uh, at that point. I just found it interesting that they would look at that as a link.
1: Yeah. We might have actually found, uh, if not the same. Um, Somebody's
2: feedback really bad. I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: I yeah. didn't. I think Ayaz is, is okay. He so Ayaz uh muted himself. He'll come back on if he needs to say something.
1: <laughs> um. So I don't know if we found the same source or not, Chris, but I I have here in my notes, again, this is the same study that looked at um, not just the quality of food, but sorry, that looked at the quality of food. And it noted that criminal behavior is higher because they said when mothers don't eat enough food or they eat uh, foods that are really high sugar, it can lead to the child developing aggressive behavior. And they said that it's most noticed at the age of seven And they said that that can be um, like a predicting factor as to whether they're going to engage in criminal activity willingly or not. I mean, they might just be predisposed to getting angry or over um, something that's not typically significant. They might lash out and that could cause them to get into legal troubles, whether it's hitting a classmate or, or destroying, like destroying something. So, and, um, they they found that interventions that focus on healthy eating in childhood can actually reduce the aggressive behavior and therefore um, tends to lower the rate of criminal behavior in later adulthood in those children.
2: Not the same study but very
3: similar. Um I just want to I'm sorry about that. I had to mute myself because I think I was being interrupted. <laughs> someone wants to see what's going on in this room. Um, but I just wanted to touch up on uh, Lauren and Chris both, what, what you guys both said. And um, yeah, I, I I personally didn't find anything to do with a uh, criminal activity and nutrition. That's uh, very interesting. But um, yeah, I, I do see how that connection can be made because uh, I guess the phrase you are what you eat is. Um, it's true. And in all, <laughs> in all essence is pretty true because um, if we're just an amalgamation of certain neurotransmitters firing through our brains and you know making us feel certain ways and if those neurotransmitters are just coming from the breakdown of what we're eating depending on what we're eating may very well affect our behavior as well so yeah if you're um, and uh, not only that uh, as many mentioned too um, if you're close to the poverty line um, you're you're probably feeling desperation or in in certain countries like or even not even we don't even have to go too far even in just a uh, Western countries like if you're if you're if you're at that poverty line like people will go um, pretty far you know just to feed their family like they will do anything um, including criminal activities like they may have to steal but um, that definitely increases the chance for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, this kind of goes off a little bit, but not so much. Um, this can turn into in a sense a, a social problem or social policy type of a thing where what does it mean to have access to adequate food? Yeah. And then you look at the poverty line, you look at the price of what stuff costs and you see increase of of uh, you know, challenges and whatnot going on. Is that really linked to everything? And it's like a big almost a tower. You start with Poverty line, which goes up to the challenge because of lack of access to adequate food. Mm -hmm. No proper, not proper nutrition, not proper access to services maybe that they need. And and it all goes up into one big, uh, one big tower or under one umbrella. And it becomes a, a social sort of a problem.
3: Yeah, um, I'm not really, uh, well, I don't really have too much knowledge on exactly social policies or how those things work. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree with that. Like, I think there's definitely need for perhaps maybe not reform, but just a, a second look on things and how, um, you know, how we're um, marketing these things, to just certain foods, like if from, from junior chicken at McDonald's costs, a um, dollar fifty, but a box of strawberries or a box of blueberries that actually contains antioxidants costs like twice as more or three times as more. Um, yeah, people are obviously likely to pick out the easier option or the cheaper option or the more convenient option. Um, so, yes, uh, the responsibility does at the end, I think it falls on the consumer, which would be us, um, to watch what we're eating, but at the same time, um Like, I I can see why it is so hard just to maintain um, a healthy lifestyle or a healthy diet, because um, it's not only um, taxing or burden, burden, like financially burdening, but at times uh, in other ways as well.
0: I have a question because, you know, the, the timeliness of this conversation is associated with the release of the New Canada's Food Guide. And I know that, uh, I don't know if any of you have had a chance to have a look at it, but I know there's been a lot of um, excitement over it because it's changed uh, and there ha- and as opposed to previous uh, Canada Food Guides where there's a lot of lobbyist works that um, ensured that like milk and dairy products were on there, for example, and those aren't listed the same way anymore. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it has been reformed, it seems to be more aligned with what our nutritional needs are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it does represent a little bit more diversity um anyway do we have any thoughts on that you know either I, in general actually, or specifically from a neuroscience perspective
2: i actually read about that and have the as part of the sources uh list the link to the revised version um so it is in there in the in the show notes as well i was reading and it seems to be a positive thing because there's more of a focus it seems on the newer the newer revision and like you say culturally too you know there's it's fine to say Canada, canada food guide uh, but it takes a bit more of a look at diversity and the type of stuff that people might consume instead of just looking at everybody as one yeah
3: So um, I was actually just taking a look at the new food guide while we were just discussing. So they they have a very nice convenient picture, um, which actually actually just shows you the breakdown of what should be in your plate. And I can see like 50% of the plate is fruits and veggies, which is, um, I think, um, quite accurate. And then I I think that's how it should be because um, those are the things that are kind of... um, give you the antioxidants and not even that they are going to provide you with all the nutrition that you need minus um the unhealthy uh products or byproducts that are coming in uh perhaps from too much meat or something like that plus um if you're eating a lot of fruits and veggies um you have a lot more fiber which means um, you're relieving yourself more often or not more often but in a better way you're you're able to feel lighter throughout the day Um, and just not as loaded or heavy. Mm -hmm.
1: I think I noticed with the food guide. So there was this article that discussed the effects of nutrition on cognition Mm -hmm. and it listed a bunch of, um, different so it says uh flavonoid saturated fat and then it mentions all the b vitamins vitamin d vitamin e mm-hmm. choline, um calcium zinc selenium etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. and it listed the kinds of foods that um, iron is found in that copper is found in and as i'm going through it i noticed that very few of these actually refer to carbs breads and, and such and i think that that's um, really important because I remember growing up that, um, carbohydrates were your main source. And I would look at the food guide and I would say, mom, how am I going to eat 12 mm-hmm. servings of bread in a day <laughs> and still have room for me, still have room for dairy, still have room for eight or whatever servings of vegetables. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm looking at it, I, I can see why, um, the fruits and vegetables have taken the forefront of of the food guide because it contains a lot of omega-3 fatty acids it contains a lot of flavonoids um lower in saturated fat so i think here um we referred back to in the beginning of this podcast saturated fat is harmful for you uh, if you have too much of it and um Again, when I look at the foods under it, it refers back to butter, oil, dairy products, uh, creams. And and I think that that just further shows why vegetables need to take the forefront of, of our health. And I, I think that this can help children in general just develop because for me growing up, I focused so much on eating breads and not so much vegetables and the other sources that Now, I have an easier time still eating breads than I do vegetables. So I wonder if Mm -hmm. this will will help children um, notice the importance of it, and they'll really focus on that, put the carbohydrates in the backseat, or just focus on complex carbs. Um, Does it it mention that? Go ahead, Chris. Does it mention
2: the difference between the, the complex and the simple? Because... Even, again, in terms of carbohydrates are concerns, concerned, let's, let's just take something simple, potatoes. There's a difference between your regular, you know, white potatoes versus a sweet potato, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And that's where the complex and the simple carbs come in. Like sweet potato may be considered as a carb, but it also has beta-carotene and some other things in it that are essential.
1: Better for you, yeah
3: um i just want to um touch up on the same point um lauren what you mentioned about your diet from an early age so um and to this day i think um like at home this is exactly what everyone eats but at my at my house i think we cook at least three cups of rice on average in a day um i do have a quite a big family there's um six of us so it explains it, but still, three cups of rice at each meal, aside, okay, from, aside from breakfast, lunch and dinner, we would eat rice. Rice would be the main, main thing, and then your veggies or your chicken or whatever it would be, um, you know, chicken gravy with chicken or, or whatever, that's, that's the side thing. I think um, once I realized how bad that was, and I can't really blame um, that diet on anyone because I think that diet comes from a very um it's it's it comes from our cultural background because like back home India is like um a lot of a lot of people are farmers so their way of eating is supposed to you know be in line with how they exert themselves but when when times changed and um, modern times came I guess we didn't change our diets and we were left with like two yeah. plates of rice in a day um but yeah once I realized that I had to make that switch and I had to make um my meat or my veggies or whatever my actual um dish was as the main thing and put rice as a side thing
1: yeah yeah now i wonder if um i didn't find anything about this but i wonder if there's differences in the rates of um, mental illnesses like depression and such in countries that focus primarily on carb consumption like rice noodles etc i wonder if that if there would be differences in in people's functioning and, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, I think I th- it would be a really big study to take on, but yeah,
3: we, yeah, I, I think um, across cultures, if we could observe how different diets have different cognitive yeah. benefits or even impairment, um, yeah. that would be a great study. But as far as um, carb consumption and depression goes. I'm not exactly sure if um, there would be correlation. Correlation there, I like. I know there's a lot of studies indicating. Yeah. Carb, I'm sorry, carb cons- uh, consumption and other health risks like you know heart disease, cholesterol, diabetes, such things. And I know um, my demographic, or like um, people back home, or just the South Asian demographic, a lot of us uh, deal with just like high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. and uh, diabetes just because of our diet like it's to the the point where it's become hereditary for a lot of
0: us. yeah yeah i find um all of the the nutrition and and neuroscience stuff or just diet and diet in general like all the nutrition literature Mm -hmm. scientific literature is like so messy there's like you know so many different um ways of eating different, like variations of diets and everything. And so that when you, when you dive into the literature of nutrition, it's super messy. And then when you try Mm -hmm. to dive into that and then connect it with, you know, mental health or cognition or anything, it just gets, it gets so, um, extra messy. And, um, and I think that we've actually avoided really looking at nutrition for a long time, but in the last, like, decade or so, maybe two decades now, I've seen Mm. a a shift to like more interest in the nutritional neuroscience um, aspect. And I think that going forward, it's really exciting to, you know, pose those questions like you did, Lauren, and, and, you know, try to sift through the mess to find the answers for some Mm -hmm. of those, which I don't think we have Mm -hmm. yet, but we might eventually get. Any, any, any thoughts on that or any, um, Final thoughts, I guess, because it's, it's one o'clock now, um, or it's been an hour since we've been talking and I'm just sort of conscious of like yeah. giving our listeners and ourselves sort of a, maybe a wrap up or a final like takeaway that maybe like, maybe each of you, do you have a takeaway that you might want to offer people, um, based on what you've read? Cause I'm sure we didn't mm-hmm. get to cover a like, ton of what you all read. So do you yeah. have one sort of takeaway that you wanted to offer to listeners?
3: Um, I can I can start with that yeah for sure so and I want I want I want to say this for not only this week's episode but last week as well for my research for both of these weeks um, has pretty much the simple takeaway is that um, for me is that there is a lot of potential in ourselves for us to improve our health and our uh, cognitive uh, function. Just based on how we live our lives. Um, that's implementing just a good diet and healthy exercise. Um, and as long as you are doing those two things in moderation and in the in the right way, um, there's the, the potential for the benefits that you're going to experience, I think, is limitless. That's well, great.
0: That's, that's
2: my favorite. That's great. Chris,
0: do you want to offer one?
2: I would agree with Ayaz uh, as well. I would say, too, um in terms of dieting and exercise, I find a lot of times that um, things may be geared to, you know, try this or try this because it's going to work. This isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, whether you're talking about diet or exercise. So it's something that you have to be really patient with and you have to find what works for you. And then once you find what works for you, you might have to make minor adjustments along the way, but once you figure out the best strategy that works for you as an individual, because even biologically, everybody is different. um, then just try and stick to it as best as you can. And and don't let people discourage you.
0: Great. That's great. Lauren, do you have a, a final
1: one to add? Um, yeah, so I, I feel though, moving forward that people that have lower socioeconomic status, lower income, I feel as though we need to work better to support them even more so by providing them with healthier foods. Um, I myself, I haven't had to use a food bank, but I have had friends that have, and they've noticed that, I mean, they really only accept perishable or sorry, non-perishable uh, food items, and a lot of that is ends up being Mr. Noodles, Kraft Dinner, things like that. And and I feel as though these these individuals are already in situations that are difficult. So we need to support them even more so by providing them with these healthy foods. What whether that helps their children down the line have a lower um, lower chance of developing disorders or aggressive behaviors, which can lead to bad consequences. I just think we really need to focus on the people that, that need our help. And that's, I I, I just, it's an obligation at this point. I think it's, it's, it would be ignorant to ignore it. Mm
0: -hmm. That's great. Uh, I agree with all three of you. You all said uh, great different points that really sum up some of the conversations we had i just wanted to uh say first of all thank you again you all did amazing this was wonderful i love hearing your thoughts on this um last week was amazing because it really forced me to sit back and i think that was one of the best things we could have done because it, it gave me the opportunity to listen to you all and it was great so i like the way that you all are contributing to this and i look forward to you know continuing this okay okay I will see you talk to you all uh, next week or email sooner. <laughs> all right. Professor, all right, see right. You. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. Bye.